So the Torah tells us we have to always remember what Amalek did to us when we left Egypt. We should never forget. Zachor, remember what Amalek did. Lo tishkach, don't forget. We're told also, Timche zecher Amalek, destroy any remnant of Amalek. Destroy them entirely. Who is Amalek? Who is that? So Amalek was the name of the grandson of Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother, whom he didn't get along with too well. Um, Esau uh, wanted to kill his brother Jacob. Because of that, Jacob, our ancestor, had to flee to his uncle in Haran, which is in northern Syria, to escape his brother's anger. Um, later, he met his brother. His brother did not harm him. Um, but we, um, the, he continued to dislike his brother. Esau and Jacob went separate ways. Jacob ended up settling in the land of Canaan, where his father lived in Hebron, where he had his 12 sons grew up and he grew into a, a tribe. And they eventually went down to Egypt to join his son Joseph. And they ended up in Egypt. Esau, meanwhile, moved south of Israel to a land known as Edom. Edom is a land south of the Dead Sea that straddles the um, southern Israel and southern Jordan today. And so that's where the Edomites lived. So Esau's descendants lived there. Um, they were our neighbors later when we inhabited the Promised Land, the land of Israel. We lived in Israel. They lived south of us in Edom. We had some positive encounters with them, some negative encounters with them. Um, discussion of its own. We did a class a little while ago about um, the Jewish relationship with um, the Romans, and we then spoke about Esau and um, Esau's connection to Israel. But Esau had this one grandson. His son Eliphaz had a son whose name was Amalek. And Amalek became its own separate tribe, separate from the rest of Esau's uh, descendants who were known as the tribe of Edom. Amalek became their own separate tribe. They appeared to be a nomadic tribe that inhabited the Sinai Desert in biblical times. Now, in ancient times, as still today, there were many nomadic tribes that inhabited the desert. The area around Israel, much of Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, um, the Sinai, is all desert. Much of Egypt is all desert. And that desert is inhabited, has always been inhabited by various nomadic tribes. Tribes that usually lived off... Um, Animals, they had sheep, they live off the land, and um, they would go from one uh, oasis to the next, one grazing area to the next, um, and wandered through the desert. That's where these tribes lived. So Amalek appears to have been a nomadic tribe, again, descendants of the grandson of Esau. When Israel left, they inhabited the Sinai Desert between Israel and Egypt. When Israel left Egypt, after 10 plagues, and they crossed the Red Sea miraculously, and all of the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea. And in the song that they sang, they describe how the, everybody's afraid of them now. Everybody heard the news of what happened to the Egyptians about the 10 plagues. Word traveled fast. Even those days, word got, word got out. Everyone knew about what happened in Egypt. Everybody knew about the splitting of the sea. Everybody knew how Israel had stood at... Everybody knew how God would, had brought his nation into the desert and was caring for them. And so everybody was afraid of Israel. The Canaanites, knowing that um, 
Israel was on its way to Canaan was scared. They knew they were next. They were very scared. In the Song of the Sea that Israel sang, they say, The inhabitants of Canaan are melted in fear from Israel. In fact, much later, 40 years later, when they actually do enter Israel, Rahab, a Canaanite, describes to two Israelite spies how um, scared everybody is of the people of Israel. Everyone knows how their great God has overcome Egypt and what he's been able to do. Everybody was scared of them. Everybody was awed by Israel and really by God. It wasn't Israel who did it. It was God who brought the plagues on the Egyptians and split the sea and drowned the Egyptians. And then, right after Israel came out of the sea and the Egyptians drowned, Amalek attacked Israel. There were this nomadic tribe in the Sinai Desert. They came and attacked the people of Israel. Moses appointed Joshua, his attendant disciple, to lead the battle against Amalek. And the people fight with Amalek. Um, and they do vanquish Amalek. They win the battle of Amalek. They chase them away. Um, but then... God tells Moses, write down about what happened in this war. Write a remembrance. And tell Joshua, who had led the war, that God will destroy Amalek. And God then swore, raises his hand, so to speak, in oath. Of course, that's a metaphor. That God swears that he will be at war against Amalek from generation to generation. God will be at war against Amalek from generation to generation. This nation that attacked us. Later, towards the end of the Torah, one of the final commandments that Moses reminds of the people before his death is to always remember what Amalek did to us and never forget what they had done. How they had attacked us when everybody else was afraid of us Everybody else was, this, was scared of us. Amalek stepped in and attacked us. So we must always remember what Amalek did to us. Never forget. And Moses also commands them, that commands the people, once you have entered the promised land and overcome all your enemies in and around the promised land, you should then destroy the tribe of Amalek. So the command to remember Amalek is one of our 613 commandments. We have to always remember, and it would be like any commandment, and commandment that would be eternal. And to remember is easy. It's something that would always apply. We have to always remember what Amalek did to us. And that is why every year we read the Torah. We all go to hear, make sure we hear the Torah reading. And those who don't usually go to show, go to hear the Torah reading about what Amalek did to us. Because we're supposed to never forget. It's a commandment. Always remember what they did to us. Never, ever forget. We must always be aware. In fact, there's a Jewish custom to actually read about it. We read, there's a couple things the Torah says we must always remember, um, such as the Exodus. You have to always remember the Exodus. Always remember having stood at Sinai. Always remember what Amalek did to us. So there's a custom to recite that every single day. Never forget how Amalek attacked us. Bart, you have a question? Yeah, uh, is there any relationship between the um, Amalek and the Arabs? That is a very good question. We don't know. I'm going to soon get to who Amalek is today, uh, where we find them today, um, because we also have another command to destroy them. 
It's another one of our 613 commandments. We must destroy Amalek. Well, who are they? Where do we find them? Are they the Arabs? The short answer is no, they are not the Arabs. The better, the other question then, or the follow-up question is, then who are they? And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Don. Yes, Rabbi. Uh, would it be fair to say that we actually hear this portion twice? Once here as a special reading, but once as the normal course of reading the Torah? Yes, we do. We do hear it twice as a special reading and as a course of reading the Torah. You're absolutely right. Uh, but we make a special reading because we want to make sure we remember it. We actually hear it four times. It's twice in the Torah, once when the Torah originally tells the story, another time when Moses says to remember. Um, we then also read it on Shabbos, and then we actually read about it on Purim, too, in the morning. Um, our Purim reading is also about Amalek. So you could say we read about Amalek four times. Uh, uh, Sandy has a question, Rabbi. Sure, go ahead. Uh, yeah, if... Um... I think that um, Amalek represents that we should never be so self-confident, so over sure, so turn our back and to recognize that there is evil. Um, All right, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about soon what Amalek represents, but first we're going to try to figure out who Amalek is and what we're supposed to be doing. All around us. So yes, you have a very good point, Sandy. I'm going to get to that shortly. Excellent point. Thank you. Excellent point. So... So the command now is that we have to remember Amalek, and this is a command that still stands today, as well as to destroy Amalek. Only in order to destroy Amalek, as, um, as Bart pointed out, we need to know who Amalek is. We have only one challenge. We do not know today who Amalek is. We cannot positively identify them. So it's a theoretical command. If you could identify Amalek, you need to destroy them. If you can't identify Amalek and we cannot, it's a commandment that we cannot fulfill, like many other commandments, such as commandments to offer sacrifices that are commanded at various times to offer certain sacrifices. If you don't have a temple, you can't offer the sacrifices. So destroying Amalek wouldn't be possible anymore today because we cannot, we cannot identify them. But we still need to remember them and remember the need to destroy them. We don't know who they are. We cannot destroy them if we wanted to, but we still have this command to always remember what they did to us. And that commandment we still fulfill. Remember what they did to us. What is the value of the command? What does it help to remember about a nation three and a half thousand years ago that attacked our ancestors, a people, a tribe that no longer exists, a tribe that has been gone from history for over two and a half thousand years? What is the value of remembering it? What, what do we need to remember it for? It's an ancient, ancient history story that happened a long time ago that really has appears to have little relevance today. So before we answer that question about why we're trying to what we're trying to remember, let's first touch on why is Amalek so bad? Why are they so terrible? God told us we must destroy Amalek. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Totally eradicate. Not even, we're not even commanded to destroy the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the ones that enslaved us for so many years. The Egyptians were the ones that we struggled with. But we're not commanded to destroy the Egyptians. We're just commanded to destroy Amalek. Why Amalek? What did they do that was so terrible? 
So commentaries explain, our sages explain, that what they did was so terrible is they attacked Israel for no valid reason. The Egyptians felt threatened by us. We were, they thought we would be a fifth column. We were a nation within them. They thought we wouldn't be loyal to them. They were growing too quickly. They thought we would outnumber them. At least they had a reasonable excuse. Other nations that attacked us felt maybe threatened by us. Amalek, we never got in their way. We never got anywhere near them. We never threatened them in any way. They just attacked us. But even more so, why did they attack us? Because they wanted to... Why did they attack us? Did they want to gain anything out of it? What did they want to get from it? The only reason they attacked us is because everybody else was scared of us. This was right after the Exodus, as we mentioned. Everybody was scared of God, of the ten plagues, of the splitting of the sea. They were in awe of us, or really in awe of God and God's protection for his people. Everybody was scared. Amalek wanted to prove everybody there's nothing to be afraid of. And so they attacked us. They attacked us, the Torah says, They didn't fear God. Everybody else after the Exodus feared God, not Amalek. They were making a point. They attacked us to make a point, to show everybody that Israel is just Teflon. God is the God of Israel can easily be attacked. Nothing to be afraid of, even after 10 plagues and the splitting of the sea and the Egyptians drowning. Don't be afraid. Look, we can do it. The, the Midrash gives the parable of a very hot bath. And everybody's afraid to go into the bath because it's too hot. And one person says, don't worry, I'll jump in. They go in. Once they go in, everybody else goes in too. Everybody was afraid to touch Israel. Hot potato. Nobody wants to touch him. Look what happened. Look what happened to the Egyptians. Amalek says, look, nothing's going to happen. We'll attack them. And so Amalek, that's why Amalek attacked us. They cooled everybody's inspiration, everybody's fear of God. They cooled down the impression that everybody had for Israel and for God. That's why the Torah says about Amalek, they cooled you down on the road. They cooled down everybody's fear of God. So God's anger at them is not for their attack on us, but for their attack on God. Their attempt to show the world, to show the other nations, there's nothing to be afraid of. Don't worry about God. Don't worry. Even after everything he did to the Egyptians, nothing to worry about. And for that, God says, I want you to never forget what Amalek had done. I want you to destroy Amalek. Lewis? Well, <clears throat> wasn't, uh, is one of the uh, reasons that uh, Amalek attacked the Jews was because everybody knew that Jewish people took all the gold out of Egypt and they wanted that gold. They wanted the riches. There was, so there was a, a financial uh, aspect to why they did what they did. That's a very interesting perspective. I can't say I've heard that before, but very, very good perspective. Uh, well, it, it's, 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 it's well known even today. You talk to the evangelicals 
they'll all talk about all the tremendous wealth that the Jews had in leaving Egypt. Talk about it too, um, but I don't know if that was the reason Amalek attacked them. The Torah says, Asher korcha baderech, uh, which can either be translated as they met you on the road or they cooled you down on the road. And the Midrash uses this parable of the hot bath, the hot bath because of the cooling down. And um, the Midrash says that that was, it wasn't about the money. It was to make the point, don't be afraid of God after the Exodus. But you do have a good point that they would have had a valid excuse that they did it for the money. Very good point, Lewis. Uh, but that, that the Midrash says that, as I said, that um, they did it to cool down. People should no longer be in awe of God. So that's why God says to always remember what they did to us because they tried to cool the fear of God, the awe of God that all the nations had. Lo yarei they did not fear God. They tried to remove the fear of God from everybody else. They jumped in and said, don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. I'll show you. It doesn't matter. Nothing to worry about. And that's why God dislikes Amalek. And that's why we have to always remember what they did. And that's why we have to destroy them. Yet, the people of Amalek who attacked Israel are long dead. They're gone. When God says destroy the nation of Amalek, when God says destroy the people of Amalek in a future time, once you've settled in the promised land, we're not talking about the original people who attacked us. We're talking about their descendants. Many, many, many years later, innocent people, they happened, their ancestors did a bad thing which God should punish them. But why would their descendants suffer? What did their descendants do wrong? Why would God tell us to kill the descendants, destroy the descendants of the original Amalekites many, many generations later? So if we fast forward, this is a very challenging question something that touches on, there's a number of times with God in Torah, where God, a handful of times in Torah, where God gives us similar commandments to destroy various peoples. I'm not going to get into all those other times. We're going to just focus on Amalek today. But let's fast forward about 400 years. This is generations, many, many, many generations later, 400 years later. <coughs> At this time, Israel is led by the prophet Shmuel Samuel, one of our greatest prophets, who anointed the first king of Israel, King Shaul, King Saul. At the time, Amalek still existed. They were still a nomadic tribe inhabiting the Sinai Desert. From time to time, we're told, Amalek would raid communities in southern Judea for food and supplies, which was a very common practice among all nomadic tribes, apparently still happens today, Nomadic tribes raid inhabited areas when they run low on supplies. They need a, they can't always get everything in the desert and they don't like to pay for things. And so they would run raids on villages um, at the edges of inhabited areas 
in order to get whatever supplies they needed, sometimes to get food. And so they would often attack southern Israel, which is right next to the Sinai Desert. Um, but other than that, Israel had, so those communities suffered a little bit from them. But other than that, Israel had very little interaction with the tribe of Ammon. The prophet Samuel, Shmuel, and we're going to read this in this week's Haftorah. Haftorah is what we read after the Torah reading from the books of our prophets. And we're going to read the following story. The prophet Shmuel, Samuel, commanded the first king of Israel, King Shaul, Saul, to go and destroy the tribe of Amalek. It has come time to fulfill the commandment of Moses, of God, in the Torah that once the land of Israel is secure to destroy the nation of the tribe of Amalek. So Shmuel, the prophet Shmuel Samuel, orders King Shaul on an instruction from God to go and destroy the people of Amalek. And he tells him he must destroy all the adults, all the children, and all the animals belonging to Amalek. King Saul raised an army of 200,000 men from the people of Israel, easily outnumbering Amalek, which probably wasn't that large of a tribe, and waged war against Amalek. And as instructed by the prophet, King Shaul killed all the people of Amalek. But he took the king whose name was Agag, the king of Amalek, he took him captive. He also felt bad to kill the animals. He left all the animals alive, hoping to bring them as sacrifices. God then appeared to the prophet Samuel. God told Samuel, I regret having made Shaul Saul the king of Israel because he did not listen to me. I am going to take the kingdom away from him and give it to somebody else. Samuel went and confronted Saul and said, why didn't you listen to God? Saul denies it. He says, I did. I listened to God. I did exactly what God told me. Saul says, so why do, Samuel says, so why do I hear all those animals? Whose animals are they? Saul says, yes, the people wanted to keep the animals alive. We were hoping to bring some sacrifices with them. We also left King Agag alive. Samuel then tells Saul, because you have not listened to the word of God, God will take your kingdom away from you and give it to somebody else. And Samuel then rebukes Saul using the famous words, obedience is better than the choicest sacrifice. Listening to God is more important. And indeed, King Shaul, King Saul, is later killed in a battle with the Philistines. And his kingdom is taken away from him because of this incident and given to King David, who becomes the next king. Amalekites, King Saul killed, Agag, King, uh, sorry, the prophet Samuel then kills, killed Agag, uh, but Amalekites apparently somehow survived, at least some of them. He didn't actually kill all of them. They resurface a little while later. They did, some of them did survive. He didn't kill all of them. They weren't totally destroyed 
as he had been commanded. This story is very, very powerful and very, very troubling. I know some of you have questions. I want to first share my own questions, and then when I'm done, I'll take your questions as well. This story is very, very powerful and very, very troubling. It's troubling because we believe in a God of mercy. We believe in a God of justice. The Torah tells us, Parents should not die for the sins of their children. Children should not die for the sins of their parents. Each person should die for their own sin. People are punished for their own actions, not for their parents' actions, not for the actions of their ancestors 400 years earlier. These poor Amalekites, their ancestors 400 years earlier had done something terrible. But why should they be punished? What did they do wrong? Not only the adults, maybe the adults, we know the adults were raiding Jewish communities in the southern Israel. Maybe the adult, but what about the children? The children do wrong. God commands them to kill the children too. Innocent children and animals. Animals definitely didn't do anything wrong. But why kill the animals? How can God tell Samuel to command Saul? And this is, wasn't a command just from Samuel. It's a commandment in the Torah itself. Um, but Samuel told Saul to carry out this commandment in the Torah. To kill an entire tribe. Men, women, children, animals. How can God tell Saul to do such a thing? How can he tell us it's a mitzvah? How did he give us such a commandment? How can he instruct Saul to do such a thing? It's a big question. Very problematic. Very troubling. Something that we should all be troubled by. Because if we share the values that the Torah taught us, the value of justice, of never punishing one person for another person's sin, of never punishing innocent people, never harming people for no reason. It's very, very troubling. And indeed, I don't have an answer. I don't think we have an answer to this question. We really don't know. This is one of our troubling commandments. God told us to do something that we find very, very troubling. It's almost like what God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Not just hard to do, because who wants to kill their own child? But again, it goes against our values. There God was just testing Abraham. Just kidding. He didn't really mean it. But here God did mean it. Why? We don't know. It contradicts everything we know about God, about the values Judaism gave us. And yet, this is what God commanded us to do. We know that's what God told us to do. So that's what we're supposed to do. We don't understand God's instructions or God's ways. But it's not for us to question God. He's our creator. God is smarter than us. For many commandments, he explained to us why we should do it. Many commandments, he didn't tell us why. Many commandments are easy to do, enjoyable. We appreciate them. Then there's some commandments like these that are very troubling. We don't know why.
In fact, King Saul himself was troubled by this commandment. So troubled that he couldn't bring himself to follow this commandment entirely. He couldn't believe that God really wanted him to do such a thing. And therefore left apparently some of the people alive, along with the animals. He couldn't bring himself to do it. He did part of it. He did most of it. But he couldn't get it, bring himself to do the entire thing. And that's where Samuel rebukes him. And Samuel tells him, Obedience is more important than the sacrifices. Obedience is more important than what doing what you feel is right. If God told you to do something, and you know God told you to do it, because firstly it says so explicitly in the Torah, and we knew Samuel to be a real prophet. He's the leader of Israel. He's the one that appointed Saul as king. And Samuel commanded him on God's word to do it. If God tells you to do it, you do it. That's what you're supposed to be doing. This story is both troubling and powerful. Troubling in where God is giving us a, gave Saul a command, gave us, it's one of our 613 commandments, a command that is extremely troubling, goes against all of our values, goes against everything that the Torah has told us, something that we cannot justify, cannot understand, goes against everything that we stand for. Very troubling. And yet the commandment stands. And we've got to do what God tells us to do, even if we are troubled by it, even if we have a hard time with it. And very, therefore very powerful. Powerful in which Samuel rebukes King Saul and says, you didn't listen. You didn't listen to God. As hard as it was, as troubling as it was, you didn't listen because your conscience wouldn't allow you to. God's upset. God's going to take away your kingdom. You cannot be king of Israel if you don't follow God's instructions. Powerful for us today. Because while generally we say about the Torah, that's from Proverbs. Its ways are ways of um, pleasantness. And all its paths are peaceful. The Torah is pleasant, beautiful. People look at the Torah, they're impressed. The Torah itself says the nations of the world are going to look at your Torah and look at your values. And it's going to be something that everyone's going to admire. It's your wisdom. That is the admiration of the other nations. And yet, we have some commandments that we struggle with. We may not like. We may have a hard time with, like this one. But that doesn't mean we have a choice not to follow it. We may have commandments today we have a hard time with. Yet, we don't have a choice not to follow it. Maybe some commandments today don't follow values that are valued today. We struggle with them. And yet, we don't have a choice. God says, this is what you do. This is what we do. So we learn from this mitzvah. We don't understand that it, it's troubling and we should be troubled by it. At the same time, we learn from this mitzvah that we must listen to God, whether we agree or not, whether we like it or not. Bart? 
I know Don. Let's do one at a time. Bart, do you want to unmute yourself? All right, Don, let's give you a chance. We'll get back to Bart. Uh, Rabbi, I, I, I am troubled by this. I, I think we see in the Torah multiple times where God shows us that humans are fallible, that they are not perfect, whether we go back to Adam and Eve uh, or we look at Noah who gets drunk. Um, I think you could say that Saul was showing his humanity. The real problem that I have with this is that this is genocide, purely uh, no other definition of the word when you say kill the adults, kill the kids, kill the... And I just don't see how that is a value of God and how we're supposed to take from this, okay, uh, he then wants to punish the man who shows his humanity towards the rest uh, because he's not willing to perform genocide. And, and if we are being commanded, then are there other places where we should be finding the opportunity to perform genocide? Is this something that God wants us to perform on a regular basis? Uh, I know I've asked you this in, in shul three, four years ago when we read this thing about genocide, and it doesn't make any sense to me. You're, uh, you're, very, you're, you're very understandably troubled. So am I. So should we all be, because it goes against our values, um, as I mentioned before. Now, to the question, does God want us to perform genocide today? The answer is absolutely not. Um, today, as I mentioned earlier, we don't know who Amalek is. Someone mentioned, suggested that maybe it's the Arabs. It is not the Arabs. We don't know who Amalek is. The nation of Amalek has long dissipated, disappeared from history. Um, the last we hear of it is um, in the days of the kings of Israel. Um, so well over two and a half thousand years ago. They've long disappeared from history. We don't know who they are. So the commandment cannot be fulfilled in its literal sense today. There is no command to kill any innocent people by God today. Nor has there been for two and a half thousand years. But there were such commands. So to be clear, no, God does not want us to do it. To be clear also, we believe killing innocents is wrong. And we still believe that today. And we always believe that because that's part of our value and it says so in the Torah. We absolutely believe that. And yet, as troubling as it may be, God commanded us to destroy Amalek. Danny Saul wanted in to make particular was commanded to destroy Amalek. And Saul failed in that. And was punished for that failure. And you're right, Don. What Saul did is very understandable. If you and I were in Saul's position, hard to imagine we would have done any different. And yet God said, this is what I want you to do. And Saul was punished for not following God's instructions. Sandy had and another I think question. what we are to take from that, Bar, I'll get to you in just a moment. I just want to finish with Don. What we are to take from that is, firstly, we are to recognize that our values remain. We don't believe in killing innocents, other than these very few exceptions that God has given us. We don't have any commandments of genocide today. That should be very, very clear. And anybody who attempts killing innocents, we should, as people who share our Torah values, we should punish those who do kill innocent people. And we're very, very clear about that. However, what we also take from this is 
for today that there may be other troubling commandments. I don't want to go and get into examples because I'm afraid as soon as I start with the examples, um, we're going to get off into a tangent discussing those examples. But those who wish to stay off the class, I'm happy to share a few. But there are maybe commandments today that we're very uncomfortable with. Those commandments that we're uncomfortable with remain commandments. The fact that we're uncomfortable with does not excuse us from following God's commandments. Now, to be clear, and I made this clear earlier, generally God's commandments are pleasant. As I mentioned earlier, God's, it's enjoyable to be Jewish. It's pleasant. It's admirable Jewish values, Jewish teachings. It's a good life to live life as a, as a following God's commandments. It's a highly valued, it's a life of good values and good morals. But there are some commandments that are troubling. And for those commandments that are troubling, we still accept them as God's commandments. And we still have to do them regardless. Bart. Okay, Sandy. Okay, I can Sandy. hear you. Yeah. Okay, so two things. Metaphorically, okay. I'm going to get to the metaphor soon, so I'm going to hold you off on that one. Okay, go ahead, Sandy. Okay. Finish your well, question. Well, he just yeah. Stopped. Go ahead. He stopped. Finish your your other question. Okay. Yeah, well, do your second one. Yeah, we'll get to the metaphor soon, and I'll ask you to come when we get there. Okay, well, what I wanted to say two things. One is sometimes we are driven so much by compassion that we cannot <clears throat> see the greatest evil, which would be those trying to quote unquote, kill the belief in God, uh, that God does rule all and that his commandments should be obeyed. And so with our compassion, we overlook. Now the killing, uh, you won't let me say the word metaphorically, but you cannot allow the evil to, um, there's ways to do killing in different ways, not, not to actually physically kill, but there's ways to stop, to prevent the spread of um, and, uh, the destruction of the belief in God, that there exists a God. And to be perfectly honest, not political, but we are encountering it today. So if you do not put down and stop as God wished all, basically, or your belief in it or stand up for it, then it will allow to fester, be allowed to fester and to grow and to develop and others to believe the same thing. And so the greatest uh, sin would be those trying to destroy, quote unquote, God, to take down the belief. And that is true today as it was in Amalek's time. It's just different ways. I mean, we Excellent don't point, Sandy. Some of that involves a metaphor that we're going to soon talk about, and you're absolutely right, and I'm going to get discuss some of that more in detail in just a few moments. Um, I think that to the first part of your point that you made, um, that there's an additional lesson that we have from this mitzvah of killing Amalek, um, that sometimes we are merciful to the cruel, and I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, the Gemara Talmud tells us that those who are merciful to the cruel are cruel to the merciful. Um, and in other words, there are often people that are evil and need to be stopped. And sometimes violently they need to be stopped. We need to use force to stop them. Um, and being afraid to be 
cruel, being afraid to be cruel to those who are cruel or being afraid to take extreme steps to stop those who are cruel will end up in greater harm to innocence. And you're absolutely right about that. And that's an important lesson from Amalek. Um, to be clear, it's not entirely, um, doesn't explain the commandment to destroy Amalek because even were we to say that the people of Amalek had some kind of inner evil within them, um, they didn't do anything wrong that we know of the Amalekites in King, King Saul's day. So it still wouldn't remove the troubling aspect that we mentioned earlier, but you're absolutely right. It's another lesson that we have that people who are not to be merciful to the cruel, and this is a mistake that we as a nation have made time and again, and I think um, countries today make that mistake, but there are um, people who need to be stopped and we fail to stop them until it's too late. Um, so you're absolutely right. Very good point, Sandy. And I'm gonna get to the other part of your point, um, the metaphoric part, I'm gonna get to very shortly. Yes, Helene. Uh, maybe I've got this all wrong, but Jacob and Asa were brothers. Perfect. Okay. So if Jacob is Jewish, Asa is Jewish? That's a very good question. Um, the covenant of God with the, cov the covenant of God with Abraham followed through only one of Abraham's sons, Isaac, and then continued only through one of Isaac's sons, Jacob. So in other words, Asa was rejected by God. Um, Jewish in the sense that you're born into Judaism only began with the covenant at Sinai, so much later. In other words, God made of the covenant with Sinai with the children of Israel or Jacob's descendants, not with other grandchildren of Abraham. Oh, okay. Because anyway, I'm, I was a little confused. But they are relative of ours. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So many, many years later, about 500 years after Saul, Israel was in exile now. The temple, first temple had been destroyed. Israel had been exiled. And they were, in, they were living under Persian rule, the Persian Empire, when Haman, Haman, who was a minister in the empire, plotted to kill all the Jewish people. Haman, in the story of Purim, is called Haman Ha'agagi, Haman from Agag, notably the same name as the king of Amalek in King Saul's days. Our sages therefore say that Haman was an Amalekite. Either he may have been a biological Amalekite, some Midrashim suggest, from those that survived um, Saul's um, killing of most Amalekites, or at least he was a spiritual descendant of Amalek. Um, Haman hated Jews. He wanted to kill and destroy the Jewish people. The term we use in the Megillah is lahashmid laharog to annihilate, to kill and destroy. He wanted to annihilate our people. What today they call genocide. He hated Jews and wanted to destroy the Jewish people. God thwarted Haman's plot in the story of Purim, which we'll talk about next week, through Mordechai and Esther, the Mordechai, the Jewish leader, and his cousin Esther, the queen. And as a result, Haman was hung and the Jews were saved. And that's why we celebrate, that's why we celebrate on Purim. So we're celebrating on Purim, not only God's salvation, God saved us from a threat of annihilation and victory over Haman, but also a victory over Amalek. 
In fact, our sages find the story of Purim alluded to in the verses in the Torah describing Amalek. Because the victory over Haman and his people, and Haman had some 50,000 followers around the empire um, who attacked Jews um, in the story, in the Purim story. Um, Haman and his followers. Not only do we celebrate overcoming Haman, but we celebrate it as overcoming Amalek. And that's the reason why we read this reading of Zachar about remembering what Amalek did to us after every year before, the, before Purim. Because we see the Purim story and the miracle of Purim, the salvation of Purim, not just as our people being saved and Haman being hung, but as part of the story of our battle with Amalek. In other words, though the nation of Amalek no longer exists today, they've long, long disappeared. And the mitzvah of genocide, of destroying the nation of Amalek no longer exists. Nevertheless, that we are still commanded to remember what Amalek did to us and to destroy Amalek. And so our sages understand the fulfillment of this mitzvah today, as Sandy pointed out, in Amalek being a generic term for everybody who hates us, for this irrational hatred that Haman had, that many others had before him, after him, people that wanted to annihilate our people wanted to destroy our people, believe that we were the source of evil in the world, believe that we were their nemesis, had a problem with Jews. And these people have continued. Jews have been hated in an irrational sense throughout all of history. As long as there have been Jews, there have been Jew haters, people that irrationally hate Jews. And though those Jew haters often have excuses for their Jew hate, sometimes religious, sometimes nationalistic, they find Jews as a threat, sometimes economic, but what they all have in common is that it's irrational. It's an irrational hatred, not for a specific individual, not for a specific act, but for a people, for a nation, for the Jewish people. There is this irrational hatred that they've always had towards us. And uh, they've used all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes it's been religious, sometimes nationalistic, sometimes economic, all sorts of reasons. But it's always been this irrational hatred. Now, why God created that in such a way we discussed in a previous class about anti-Semitism and the irrational hatred towards Jews. But it's always existed. In the 19th century, this term was called for this irrational hatred towards Jews the term was coined anti-Semitism. And it's still widely in use today. It's a term for the irrational hatred towards Jews. And the truth is, while we Jews have suffered from this irrational hatred continually throughout our history, we've been attacked time and again. We've been killed time and again. We've had laws limiting our actions, limiting our movements, all sorts of anti-Jewish laws that we've had to live under in many different, we've lived under people who constantly um, riled up crowds to attack us, and we lived under pogroms. Um, thankfully, today, we Jews actually feel less anti-Semitism than probably our ancestors in history ever had. And that's thankfully because 
most of our neighbors like us. In fact, surveys done by Pew show that Jews are the most popular um, group, um, ethnic group within the United States, believe it or not. We're actually very popular. We're also at the same time, the most hated group in the United States. Both are true. We're more popular than any group. Um, in other words, more people like Jews and also more people, maybe more people are opinionated about us. More people hate us than any other group or express hatred towards us. Uh, but thankfully we live in a country where most of us don't experience direct anti-Semitism. Uh, many never in their lifetime, at least not on, on a, in an open way, maybe subtle, but not an open anti-Semitism. Most of us won't experience it, but that's not because it doesn't exist. It still does exist. In fact, a majority of people on earth and Pew has done and ADL has done um, surveys of various countries around the world. A majority of people on earth are anti-Semitic. Thankfully, we Jews don't live anywhere near most of them. They live in Africa and the Middle East and Asia in places where we Jews don't tend to live. We finally moved to places where people tend to like us. So at least we're a little thankful. Although recently we've seen a growth in anti-Semitism in this country um, on the fringes of the political spectrum on both sides. And it's very unfortunate. And even more unfortunate is that each side defends their own anti-Semites and attacks only the anti-Semites on the other side. And that's something that we should be very concerned about. So remembering Amalek then is about remembering that there are always those who hate us. And there are always those who want to destroy us. We must be aware of that hate. We must stand up to it. And we must ultimately destroy it as we did with the Purim story. So while we cannot destroy the nation of Amalek today, they don't, the actual nation doesn't exist, we remember what Amalek did to us to remember that in every generation people stand up against us. That there are haters today. There are many, many people today that hate us. Even if the numbers are very low, it's less than 10% of the United States that harbors anti-Semitic views, which on a historical perspective, or even comparing that to other countries, even Western European countries, it's extremely low. It's among the lowest in the world. It's less than 10%, more than two thirds of Americans love us. And yet when you think about it, 10% of Americans hate us. That's 30 million people in our country. A lot of haters out there. A lot of people who hate us, we have to be aware of that. We should never forget it. We have to stand up to it and we have to ultimately destroy it. And throughout history, we have always referred to those who hate us as Amalekites. Earlier, someone asked whether the Arabs are Amalekites. Our Arabs are clearly not the original Amalekites. They're definitely not. We don't believe we have any mitzvah to destroy Arabs. And anybody who suggests otherwise is wrong and um, is wrong and dangerous too. Um, but there are within the Arab community, surveys show that a very large percentage of them, the vast majority of them in every single Arab country harbor anti-Semitic views. There's been some change in some Arab countries in recent years, thankfully, for the good. Although it's anti-Semitism in a lot of countries like the Emirates and other countries is going down, thankfully. But um, they still, a lot of them harbor anti-Semitic views. And we've always referred to anti-Semites as Amalekites. 
we don't believe we necessarily have to kill every anti-Semite. That would be a little extreme, not called for, but we do need to counter them. We do need to stop them. And those who do pose a direct threat to us, who are threatening to kill us, sometimes we do have to actually destroy them. We have to take, up, take a stand against them. We shouldn't be afraid. Today, there's a nation in the world, Iran, that's threatening to annihilate Israel. It's threatened time and again. That should concern us. That's something we have to stand up to. That we should find that very, very concerning. And every Jew should stand up to that. There are others. There are in our own country people that want to destroy us. And so we have to stand, be aware of that, remember that, and stand up to it. We're running over time, and I'm not done yet. But let me just take um, a few questions. I know there were a few. Any questions? Caleb? Uh, yes. Uh, the command to kill Amalekites and command to remember Amalekites, are those two different commandments? Yes. Yes. And the kill Amalekites no longer applies today because we don't have Amalekites, but remember does because we could still remember. Right, so had King Saul killed, killed all the Amalekites, would there be uh, one less commandment today? Oh, to be able to kill the Amalekites. And that, I guess in that sense, I'm not sure if it's counted offhand. I'm not sure if it's counted within the 613 as two. But yeah, um, had he killed, then it wouldn't exist. I mean, we have other commandments that don't actually exist in that sense today. So yeah, good point. Okay, thank you. So now Jewish thinkers, particularly in Kabbalah, but Jewish thinkers in general and Hasidic thinkers point out, point to not only Amalek as a metaphor for everybody who tries to destroy us as Amalek did, but point to a different kind of Amalek that we must remember and we must destroy. This is a spiritual Amalek. Amalek, a force that can be inside of us, our own evil inclination. The nation of Amalek attacked us when everybody else was afraid of us after the Exodus. Everybody was in awe of God after the 10 plagues that had been brought on Egypt, after the splitting of the sea, after the Egyptians had drowned. Amalek stepped in, attacked us to cool off that awe of God, to show we were not invincible, to show that there's no need to be afraid of God and his people. Inside of us, there is also a force that we call Amalek, a force that cools us down when we get excited over something good. Amalek then, in this perspective, in this metaphor, is the skeptic inside of us, the cynical voice inside of us that says, no big deal. Who cares? Why would you do this mitzvah? Do you really think this is going to help you? Is this really who you are? Why are you doing that? It's the voice of doubt. It's the voice of ridicule that challenges our religious inspiration. Sometimes the voice is external. Sometimes it comes from people around us. Say, that's not you. Why, why are you praying? Do you really believe in that? Why would you be doing that? Why are you getting excited? Why are you wasting your time with this? 
Why are you giving your hard-earned money to charity? It's that voice that sometimes it's outside of us. And sometimes it's within us. It's a voice that tries to cool down that inspiration. So remembering what Amalek did to us is being aware about the, of that skeptic and cynic inside of us or around us, outside of us. Healthy skepticism is good, but not when it stops us from doing what we're supposed to be doing. Our mitzvah then to destroy Amalek is a mitzvah to ignore the voice of the skeptics, ignore the cynics, ignore those around us, the cynics around us, ignore the voice of cynicism within us. We humans are both intellectual and emotional. We're driven intellectually and we're driven emotionally. Now, generally, a person with strong character, with good character, would be a person who's led intellectually, not emotionally. Being emotionally driven is not generally a good thing. You want to be driven intellectually. You want to be an intellectual person. And Judaism focuses on building good character. We don't. Building our character. And so we believe that we should generally focus on being driven intellectually. Doing what makes sense. Doing what we know and understand to be the right thing to do. But at the same time, our cold intellect is not always good. It doesn't allow us to get inspired. So, yep, that's a good idea. But you don't get inspired. There's no excitement. But you can say, yeah, that's a bad idea. But you don't have an awe. You don't have a fear. Or a, you don't pull back from doing it. So, so into our intellectual appreciation or not, acknowledgement of good and bad is not enough. We need to get inspired. We need to be excited about doing a mitzvah, about doing the right thing. We need to have what we call ahavat Hashem, love of God, love of doing the right thing, be driven to do good. We need to also be in awe, afraid of doing bad. Step back, I can't do it, it's the wrong thing to do. We need to have this fear of doing bad. These are emotional things that the skeptic inside of us sometimes like to cool down. Without that inspiration, we won't succeed spiritually. We need the inspiration. We need to step up. We need to be driven spiritually. Amalek is the skeptic and the cynic that stops us from getting inspired. Tells us, no big deal. Why are you suddenly jumping to give your hard-earned money away? To a cause. How do you even know they're going to use the money properly? You know what they're going to do with it. Maybe you'll be misused. Maybe there's better causes you could give to. The cynic inside of us. Why are, you, why are you being so careful about what you eat? Does it really matter? Why are you spending your time going to Torah classes? You could be playing golf, watching TV. You really need to know this? The cynic inside of us, the skeptic inside of us. We're inspired and says, stop. Where are you going? What's the rush? What's the big deal? It cools down that inspiration. Like Amalek, the original Amalek, that tried to cool down people's awe of God after the Exodus. So we have to always remember Amalek and what they did to us. And we have to destroy that Amalek within us. Destroy that cynicism. Cynicism is very, very dangerous. Healthy skepticism is good, 
not everyone, everything everyone says is always a good idea. Always take everything a little skeptical. Question it. Good questioning is good. Is this really the right thing to do? Should I be doing it? That's good. That's okay. We should be mostly led by our intellect. Should be careful because sometimes people are driven by their emotions to do all sorts of crazy stuff. Be careful about that. Healthy skepticism is good. But too much is not. And cynicism is not. And inspiration is good. Once you know that this is the right thing to do, get inspired. Be excited about it. If you're not, you won't succeed. So remember, Amalek, remember that cynic. And destroy him. Get rid of the cynicism. It's going to ruin our spirituality. It attacks our spirituality all the time. It's the worst thing. People are inspired and someone says, well, what are you getting excited about? What are you doing? It's the word that it kind of, it, it deflates us. It deflates that inspiration. So we have to overcome that cynicism. And that is another metaphoric understanding of the mitzvah of remembering Amalek. So just to quickly go over, because we covered a number of different things and it's a very important, um, very important lesson on Amalek. Um, the Torah commands us to remember what Amalek, to destroy Amalek and remember what Amalek did to us. Um, and never forget it. It was originally a command to actually destroy the descendants of this tribe, something that is very, very troubling for us, yet God told us to do it. Saul was punished for not following through. And we know that while we do have values in the Torah, sometimes we may not be comfortable with some of the Torah's instructions, and we have to follow them anyway, even if we find them troubling. We learned that from that story. And yet we still have a commandment today to remember Amalek, but we don't destroy Amalek anymore. There we, cannot rec we don't know who Amalek is, and so therefore that commandment is no longer applicable. We do have a commandment to remember Amalek. We remember Amalek, though they don't exist anymore, both to remember that there are people like Amalek, Haman, and the likes who try to destroy us in every generation. Those who hate us with irrational hatred, we must stand up to them. We must counter them. We must stop them. Be aware of them first. Remember them. And then also the more spiritual metaphor, the inner Amalek inside of us that we must remember. The cynic inside of us, cynicism, skepticism that deflates the inspiration. Well, yes, we need to be skeptical and we need to make sure that what we're doing is the right thing before we jump into it. But on the other hand, we can't, we've got to be careful when we're inspired and excited. Don't let the cynic within us or outside of us, deflate that. Remember the danger of cynicism. Remember how it stops us from doing the right thing. So that's what we mean to remember Amalek. And I encourage you um, to come to Shul um, if you're able to do so for those that are um, able to. I know it's difficult today. Not everyone, it's not safe for everyone to be in crowds, but if it is, we're socially distanced, come to Shul and um, uh, with, ma with mask social distancing, and we will read this Shabbat about Amalek. Um, it's going to be about 11 a.m. this Shabbat. You can come to JCC and join us over there. Um, I thank you all for joining us. Next week, I'll take questions in just a moment. Um, and next week, we will discuss, does, we'll talk about Purim, and our topic is, does God play dice with the universe?